Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody, to another Thursday breakdown of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Yeah, I thought it was Friday breakdown. Yeah, I think I think we're changing it Thursday. Just changing. So if this drops on Friday, then I just look like an idiot right now. So, uh, yeah, Jacob, how you doing? Doing well, man. It's good to finally be back on. The, we call them outros, but these these breakdown episodes. Yeah, change the name. Not great branding on our part. No, <laughs> change the name every four months. Yeah, but. Uh, turkey episodes have now come to a, a conclusion for us as most of them in the southeast are done uh, turkey hunting. I guess there's a, I'm trying to think what states are still probably open. Georgia maybe is open for a little bit. And Georgia's probably just about to go out by the time this drops. Yeah. And then, God, that's probably it. Yeah. I think, actually, I think. Unless you're traveling northward. Yeah, northward. You're, you're probably done if you're living in the southeast. Yep. But it's been a good one, dude. It's Sad a, times. It's been, it was a fun it was a fun season. Listen, I'm still a little tore up. A little, a little mad at him, are we? Well, you might get some action still. Yeah, I know, but I'm still kicking myself because I had the opportunity. If, again, 
it's like this with deer hunting too. You know, so you could execute every opportunity you had. You know, mm. who knows what kind of wall you'd have deer hunting. Same thing turkey hunting. Uh-huh. It's like, dude, if I would execute my opportunities, you know, you'd have four birds. Yeah, because I don't know. Do we talk? I don't think we've ever talked in the episode about me passing that gobbler because I thought it was a bearded hen at first. Um, I don't know if we talked about that. I don't know because it's hard. It's hard for me to remember because we don't do like these outro things. Yeah, during turkey season, we don't do the color commentary. Yeah. Uh, so we have a lot of stuff that happens between us that we don't ever talk about yeah. in the spring. But that that was sad. Because so. these are the episodes where we kind of talk about what we got going. On. I know, and it's like, dude, that 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 was that was so rough in Alabama. Like, set up sixty yards from a bird, he's gobbling on the roost. That turkey flies down next to me, like that came across the creek. And starts walking, and I'm like, oh, man, it's a freaking hen. We'll come right towards this gobbler. And it's like, it's still kind of, it's like 6 o'clock in the morning. You know, this is kind of earlier on in the season. So, you know, I'm down in this creek bottom that had a bunch of leaf cover. And it's still kind of dark, and this turkey comes out behind this tree, and it's a small little body turkey, but had a big beard on it. I'm like, is that a bearded hen? That's the first thing that hit my yeah. mind was a bearded hen. I couldn't see the the head color. It's too dark to see the head color. I couldn't see any waddles or anything like that. And uh, literally didn't even think anything else about it. It's 25 yards from me. Didn't even worry about. It. I'm still focused on the gobbler in the tree, gobbling 60 yards. And uh, when that turkey got to about underneath that gobbler's tree, he got up in some sunlight. And I'm like, oh my god, I think that's a gobbler, and it was a gobbler. Yeah. Mm. And uh, it got with that other gobbler that flew out of the tree, and they went up over the ridge gobbling. I was like, oh, dude, this. Oh, yeah. Cannot believe that just happened. Rookie move. Yeah. Cannot. Rookie believe. move. But it's kind of fun, dude. The first year taking turkey hunting more seriously, killing a few birds, and then having some other opportunities. So, yeah, blast. But we're not here to talk no, turkey it's good turkey season. It's yeah. a great turkey season. But, hey, we're not here to talk turkeys. We're talking deer hunting now. Got a uh, old Bo McTonic on the podcast from the East Meets West podcast. And uh, it was fun, dude. I, I really cannot believe that it's been this long and we hadn't done an episode with him in, in like the past because both of us have been on his show previously before and I guess just because we've talked to him so much like we just assumed yeah. that we've had him on the podcast I honestly thought we had him on the podcast it's, a, it's like look man we've done 470 something episodes at this point yep so it's hard to remember to be it honest. is but uh, no it was a blast to have him on because I mean he's a he's really become a, a very successful uh consistently successful whitetail hunter and he's up in he's up in pa in pennsylvania but uh just like his niche with his audience specifically just hitting home on like the whole mountain buck stuff with his like his mountain buck mondays and just like his all a lot of his whitetail episodes specifically kind of built around uh mountain whitetails in the east uh super fascinating i mean just really interesting he's got a great show but having him on the podcast was kind of eye-opening especially like when he talked to somebody like us, he's he's been doing the podcast as long as we have five years, mm-hmm. and uh, talk about you know some of the things that he's kind of learned throughout that period of time that he's kind of taken more into consideration to kind of potentially even help him become more and more successful because that's one thing that we've done a ton, which is you know dove down the rabbit hole with a lot of these guests where like we start taking bits and pieces from some of our guests to kind of go out and implement and start seeing some more success along with listeners and it seems like he's done the same thing as well and kind of really doubled down on some things he's been doing and also changing others but uh it, it was awesome having him on yeah no it was great having him on and he's he's a really relatable guy even though he's not from around where we're at and part of that is kind of like the same reason that paul's relatable uh even though he's in the northeast he's hunting a big wood setting and he's hunting terrain features and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of that stuff actually sets up pretty similar to down here, which we discussed in the episode. Um, but he's not, I found it interesting, his definition of like the big woods, because I think of, when I think of like big woods, I think of like giant unbroken tracks of timber or whatever. 
Uh, and he's like, no, it's just anywhere without agriculture. And I'm like, well, that's most people in the South. Like yeah. most people in the South are hunting outside of agricultural areas. So really all of it could be considered quote unquote big woods. Um, so that, that part was relatable, but then also just the subjects that we talk about are pretty relatable. Um, particularly I found on the Oak stuff. Okay. Like, um, what to do in boom and bust years for a mm-hmm. mass crop. So when there's just like absolutely no acorns on the ground or when there's a lot of them, that was interesting to me because that's something we dealt with last year here that we didn't really deal with because uh, I was able to find some. But like you said, we had people messaging us and they were like, hey, I just can't find no oaks are dropping around me. Like, what do you think I should do? And so that that was pretty interesting diving into that with Bo and, uh, and, and his view on how uh, boom and bust years are really kind of the same. Like they're both kind of difficult because uh, well, if – they are, but for him, he, he likes because he's like he typically doesn't hunt around those stuff anyways. Well, that was what I was getting into. Ah, uh, took took your took dude. Your wind out of your I know. <laughs> so <laughs> I found it really interesting that he said that he targets areas without oaks for the rut. Like that's not something I'd really heard before. Yep. Um. What What are your thoughts on that? No, I mean, it, to me, it makes a lot of sense because if you're looking at annual patterns which we're going to get in this episode because he talked a lot about annual patterns with some of these bucks but in areas where we just have a ton of oaks it's like like he said like you go scout an area that maybe had a bumper crop of oaks last year and you find all this hot sign like dude i'm going to be on them next year and then the following season comes you go and spot check them and there's no oaks dropping the deer aren't there yep and you're like well now i'm starting over from ground zero versus if you're in an area with a lot less oaks a lot less opportunities for mass crop those deer patterns seem to, and this is like kind of what he talked about, seem to stay consistent year after year because the food yeah. sources aren't really changing. Because you know he's a lot of the cases he was talking about hunting in around timber cuts, clear cuts, clear, uh, overs and like that being such a, a dominant food source for some of those deer that no matter what, unless that that ages out where it gets so big and like so much mm-hmm. woody brows that the deer aren't feeding on it as heavily as if it was a fresher cut, but he's not focusing on those areas where there's a ton of oaks where like you had those issues. Cause if you're in an area with a ton of oaks and there's places like that, we've been to like, you know, some of the stuff I've been in Arkansas, kind of the river bottoms. Uh, and then even in the more mountains of Arkansas, you have these huge areas with just a tremendous amount of oaks. And it's like, yeah, if it's a great year for acorns, it disperses the deer all over the place, unless it's in a tight pocket. So it's still kind of hard to find sign. Yeah. And if it's a bust year, then you're like, okay, what's the next next, next best food source? And you got to go and try to find that. Uh, and again, when he's talking about like, you know, I'm just trying to, like a lot of areas that he focuses on is just not in those areas where we just have a ton of oaks that consistency year over year, those annual patterns status, you know, seem to stick pretty true for him. And he can stay on those deer annually versus like having to go refine them every year yeah um and then also the how far he dives into his area to break it down uh like where i know you love this where he he set like eight trail cameras in that one valley it going up one side and down the other uh to try to figure out what elevations those bucks were working but what were your thoughts on that because you were just we're not videoing the podcast yet but you were just like freaking out i was squirming i was making facial expressions like when we finally get the video podcast guys up and running you're gonna be quite entertained because you're gonna see what catches me uh, off guard and gets me all excited but um when he said that i wanted to make sure i heard him correctly because that's what i thought he said but i want to make sure like i hadn't misunderstood what he said and we got him to clarify a little bit later on the episode but that was super interesting where he was trying to find and i don't know i can't remember if he was just trying to find where all the like majority of the bucks were kind of traveling 
or if it was for a specific whitetail that he was looking at. I, just, I can't remember the, those details of the episode. Mm-hmm. It's because by the time we're recording, this is a little bit past the time we had done the main episode with him in the main interview. But that was fascinating because I haven't heard a lot of guys talk about that where they're kind of like, you know, you have guys like um, Shane Parker, who we've had on the podcast a bunch, talking about like these micro ditches and drainages that these, you know, bucks really like to use to travel up and down. Well, what Bo was talking about wasn't a micro drainage. It was like a big draw, a big drainage, yep. uh, kind of like a creek drainage that um, it was going up in elevation that, you know, these bucks were, he knew they were in the general area and he was trying to figure out what elevation they were traveling at. And by putting those eight trail cameras at different elevation points, starting from like, say, if you were looking right down the center of the of the ditch of the creek drainage from the left side, up top, all the way down through the creek bottom, and then all the way back up the right side yep. and have them pointed in a way to kind of, you know, fine tune where those bucks are cruising at was fast. And also another interesting point that I'll bring up is how he said, like, the one buck he finally shot, which was using, like, a trail down low, like, right next to the creek. Yep. All the other bucks he had were at different elevation points. Like, he didn't have them crisscross different elevation points. Like, yeah. those bucks kind of stayed, at least on trail camera. Who knows what they did after they get past the trail camera. Mm-hmm. But they seemed to stay at different elevation points, all the different bucks. And uh, it's like, you know, he'd have different groups of bucks at a different elevation point compared to that one big buck down the bottom. And I'm like, that's super that's interesting. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. That is very interesting. What do you think that is? I don't know. I mean, I, I, that, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, whether it's based off resources or... I, I don't know. There could be so many different factors of why that would be the case. It's not like all the bucks are in one spot. And also, it might have been the case that, you know, some of those bucks, I, I'd be curious to get his take on the age class structure of some of the bucks he had on camera. Yeah. But based off the one that was down low, because I think the one down low, I, mean, I know it was a mature buck, but I don't know exactly how old he, he thought it was when he killed it. But uh, I'd be curious that maybe, like, that buck he killed might have been one of the older bucks in that area. Yeah. And he was a little bit more kind of, a, a, you know, seclusive. You know, he, he was more of a... Uh, kind of a hermit where he was wasn't wanting to be where a bunch of other deer were at Hanging which brings up something we should have asked him and i think about this but like based on all the trail cameras were the does similar to the bucks like did you have does <sighs> at all other elevations or was mm. that buck down low was it pretty much just him or was there a bunch of does down there like what other factors of other deer were in the area because it makes me wonder like was that buck that he targeted and killed was he kind of like out on his own trying to stay away from other deer and maybe some of those other deer were a little bit higher oh, in elevation cruising that's a good that's a really good question. Mm-hmm. Bo, if you listen to this, hit us up. <laughs> text <laughs> us about I'll, it. I'll text him about it. I'll ask him. <laughs> but but that would be that would have been an interesting uh, aspect to ask him about. And that's a, one fun thing about doing these outros is, you know, sometimes we think of stuff after the fact that, like, dang, we should have asked him that in the first time around. Yeah. But it gives us another reason to do another episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, that and he he also hit on some of the same, same stuff that Shane Parker hit on when I interviewed him a couple weeks ago. Uh, about the the bucks, especially in warmer temperatures, kind of staying down lower and, and using that lower stuff. And then Bo even talked about them bedding uh, lower. Um, like in this in this valley, I think he said there was like a grassy opening down there, mm-hmm. and he determined that one of these bucks was bedding in that grassy opening, uh, like actually down in the bottom. And uh, me and Shane talked about that same thing a little bit. And that that's kind of what I mean when I say that Bo is relatable even to us because Shane is down here in central Alabama in a big woods, more mountainous setting. Bo's in PA in a similar setting. Uh, and they're talking about very similar things mm-hmm. as far as terrain features and how the bucks are using all these different terrain features. Um, a- another thing that I found interesting was Bo talking about how he accessed that spot to kill the buck where he eventually, or, or he essentially walked like way up valley went over the hill and then walked back up the other valley so he he walked on the 
like he paralleled it on the other side of the hill, popped over the hill, went all the way down to the creek, and then walked all the way up the creek to a spot, like walked on the creek bank uh, to, to stay in that thermal. That is pretty much exactly what I did when I shot that buck on our mountain hunt this year because of how the wind set up. Uh, and and I could have just walked like right to it, but I I mean, I made a pretty significant detour. Now I did it like through a morning hunt, so I didn't just like walk four miles or whatever in one go. I hunted that morning and then made my way to that spot. But still, that's pretty much exactly what I did. And I, I don't know if, you know, I don't know how much of a difference it made, but I'd like to think it made a big difference um, swinging around and, and being like really I hesitate to even use the phrase overly cautious because I don't think it's overly cautious, but to some people it probably seem overly cautious where you're swinging like way around where this buck might be just so there's no chance that you're going to bump that thing. Yeah. And and putting in that extra effort because most people are probably screwing up their access when they're not killing a big buck. Yeah, and it's a lot of times it's not the shortest route to that spot. It's always the... Um I guess least invasive and that's like a big aspect to a lot of that's you know just because that deer may only be three four hundred yards from the access point uh where you may be parking your truck doesn't mean walking straight there's your best option for killing him yeah because maybe depending on whether it's a morning hunt you're going in the dark or it's an afternoon hunt you're going in you know midday mid-morning whatever get to the spot all dictates where that buck could potentially be during that time of the day but also where other deer could be at that could potentially you could bump whatever you might not even see or hear those deer but those deer go bounding out towards that buck and then you know when it gets time for him to move he's like i'm not going that way i'm going the way that all the other deer ran yep exactly Um, so yeah that's a i think that's a big aspect to it that again you know i'm guilty of it sometimes too where you're like you look at a spot man especially if it's an afternoon hunt and you Mm -hmm. get there kind of late and you're like Man, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna high tilt right to that spot. Bomb into that spot. And it's like yeah. you know, sometimes it may work, but a lot of times it's like if you do that, it's like you're shooting yourself in the foot versus if you take that longer route, swinging around, especially in those days when you're really trying to play the wind of thermals and, and try to get in a spot where again, maybe it adds an extra thirty to forty five minutes or maybe longer to get into the spot, but potentially getting in there a little bit more clean where you're not walking right through where other deer yeah. can be at. Yeah, that uh, that's something that I've talked about this on the podcast before, but there's been a lot of times over the last couple of years, uh, especially bow hunting where I'm, I've got a, uh, like a setup I'm super confident in and I'll wait for the conditions to get right. And I'm like easing in there and I just like get like a feeling and I'm like, if you just do things right, like you're going to have a good hunt, like you're going to kill something or you're going to see something. And like, I'm usually right when I get that feeling. Um, like there was a there was a mountain hunt a couple of years ago where I I killed a doe that day. So I mean it's not like I'm you know talking about a mature buck or anything like that. But I, I walked in and I started finding all this feed sign and it was like there was these rock outcroppings that I thought the deer would be bedded on. And I got in there and I was just like I started to get in a big rush and I was like you know what just slow down because it, it'd be better rather than than hurry and get in a tree in 10 minutes and have two and a half hours to hunt it'd be better if i took an hour and just really made sure that i crossed my t's and dot dotted my eyes and only had you know an hour to hunt you know uh because they're probably only going to come out right there at dark anyways well, during well, that last hour well especially like early bow season like, i think a lot of people get so when the rush especially early bow season like majority of your deer aren't going to move until that lasts 30 40 minutes of light and more than likely that big buck that mature bucks probably not can move until even later mm-hmm. so it's like if you're not trying to get in a rush or like hey i need to be in the tree two hours before dark again like you're saying go slower take your more take more time and get in there cleaner 
and uh, you know, just be set for the last 30, 40 minutes. As long as you can get in clean and quiet, quietly yeah. is, is a huge aspect. Mm-hmm. Not banging stuff, you know, having your stuff dialed in. And I think, especially when you're talking about bow season, early bow season, it's always like you go on a few hunts and you're like, you feel so stressed out because you're forgetting things or all this other stuff's kind of going on. Shaking the rust off. Yeah, and you're like, man, this kind of sucks. Like, you know, you don't have your system dialed in because it always no. feels like that for me. It always takes me probably four probably four or five sits before I'm like, okay, back in the thing, into the groove of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but like those first few opportunities, like, like again, Bo and that one, he, that buck he killed in the morning down that spot where it was coming back from a, a a clear cut that he thought it was bed or feeding in kind of coming back and potentially betting on, on another point dropping down to that uh, creek bottom you know he got in took his time got in there super clean and uh, and kind of used that that creek to his advantage uh for following thermals and kind of like work that up to a spot and climb that tree i mean that that's the thing is like so many people get in a rush and it's like if you don't already have a spot picked out you know, it's going to take some time for you to get in that location and really kind of fine tune it. And he actually did an episode on this where uh, it was him and Johnny Stewart talking about like, you know, how long it could take you if you've never been in a spot before to pick a tree to climb. Oh, and that's where like him and Johnny were talking about some spots that you know, like, hey, I'm going to come back and hunt this maybe during the rut or during a certain time of the year where it's not just you know, like early season. Yeah, to go in ahead of time and pick the tree way beforehand like have it picked yeah have it pinned know exactly where it is and, and even climb it once or twice and get it like how you want to like know exactly how high you need to climb the tree and uh so that when you get there you're not trying to like in the dark look at what tree you want to get in for 30 minutes and then you know all you're doing you're walking around in a 30 40 yard area stinking up the whole place and then you're trying mm-hmm. to climb a tree and shoot a deer with your bow which you know good luck yeah it he might get within range but he's definitely <laughs> gonna be smelling where you've been walking around oh yeah oh dude i'm the freaking worst about that too but the access thing is something we're, we're probably gonna end up harping on a lot next week too because monday's guest alan dude who has killed like all the drop time bucks in alabama y'all see on monday this guy has dude i mean for any trophy room that that i've been that i've seen it'd be an impressive trophy room if he lived in iowa or kansas mm-hmm. but he lives in alabama mm-hmm. and all these deer came from alabama it is so impressive but he harped on that too not to jump ahead to next week but y'all are going to hear about it but his one of his big things was access as well and, and how many people are shooting themselves in the foot and it makes me wonder about how many times in the past i've found just a dynamite setup hot sign everything looked right and i just wasn't careful enough with my access and i go there and end up not seeing anything and now i'm more confused because i'm like okay this i feel like this is what i should be looking for and now i've hunted it a couple times haven't seen anything when it might have been the right spot and had i just accessed it correctly that buck might have been there you know um i don't know it just makes me wonder especially with early season hunting down here because it it's hard to find guys who are consistently successful in early season Mm -hmm. but every year in early season people kill big giant bucks down here and every year in early season, we'll have trail cameras out, and we'll have big mature bucks daylighting on trail camera on public ground in Alabama, and uh, and I haven't been able to capitalize on any of those yet, but they're there and they're doing the thing, and that just makes me think even more that it's just that it's it's an access thing. Uh, I had this one spot on a local WMA, and and you knew where the spot was, but it was it was right next to a road, like right next to a highway. And you got to park and like walk up the highway and like go up into the spot. And it's a little tiny SMZ. The SMZ itself is pretty thick. 
uh, in between two pine thickets. So it's a thick SMZ in between two pine thickets. And you walk in there. I put a trail camera in there one year. And I, I don't think... Is I that might the one have, that was on a community scrape or something? There there was a scrape, but it was a red oak that was dropping. And I, I so I scouted it in late summer. And it's where uh, old Caribou Lou was, that buck. Oh, okay. I was thinking a totally different <laughs> property. I was thinking way further in a different direction. No, okay. no, okay. no, no. Okay. So there was a red oak there that was dropping. And I think I hunted that spot one time that the first season that I had a camera in there. And I didn't see anything, mm-hmm. or I might have got blown at one time. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> I hunted it, and uh, and dude, I had mature bucks like all over that camera. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. in yeah. daylight. Yeah, just and I was like, oh my gosh, next year it's over. I'm gonna get in there, and uh, dude, I, I I think I hunted it two or three times that next year, and I I crossed my T's and dotted my eyes, and I went in there at like 4 a.m and was like set up before 5 a.m. So I'm in there way before daylight and it worked. I had deer all around me. Um, I still spooked them and got blown at just because that spot is too tight to hunt. Like I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. But, but the, the second year I, I took a lot more um, precautions with my access and I actually, you know, had some good hunts in there. Had I, you know, been, been able to not get winded because what i found out is the deer were actually bedding going back to a little earlier the deer were actually bedding in the snz they weren't bedding in the pines on either side they were coming down and laying down on the creek right where my thermals were going and so i kept getting busted but anyways they're bedding between me and the highway it's it tough dude it's tough but <laughs> anyways interesting subject for sure made me want to try some some new stuff with my trail cameras this year uh, especially if if you find like a, a valley like that, like honestly on our mountain hunt last year, I feel like that'd be a pretty fun place to try that. Uh, just cause there's so many different elevations you could put a camera at. And I, I went down that steep hillside and there was pretty distinct trails on it. So I'm just wondering what we were missing. Cause we only had cameras at one elevation. Yeah. It's like the, the, uh, the mature book I shot was it we never had him on never, camera. never had him on camera, but it, it was within 300 yards of one of the cameras mm-hmm. when we shot him. But it, yeah. And that, you know, I guess you could use that whole uh, trail cam strategy just to learn like what's coming through an area instead of just putting, you know, one camera on a community scrape like what we were doing, or a couple cameras on community scrapes, but like doing like instead of like the whole valley where you're going from like one side and then up the other side, you just do like one hillside, like one mountainside like that where you're like, you know, there's not really you don't really have a, a big valley or anything on like one side. You don't have another ridge line right there, so it's like you're just going down and you're putting trail cameras every. 40 50 yards and whenever you see like a decent trail throw a camera up and to see what's coming through there i think that would be pretty interesting um but you know i don't know dude also it kind of brings up like that spot you're talking about off the highway um kind of goes back to like what we talked to bo about or what i brought with bows like some of those spots you find you're like dude this is like such a dynamite spot like there's bucks always on daylighting but they're almost unhuntable yeah and that's kind of it like that spot you're talking about it's like i don't know how you could do it any better because like you said it's so tight it's so thick in there it's like you can't really hunt on the ground i don't think in that spot yeah and then like if you give him a tree it's like okay like you're in a tree now but you still like that deer's gonna have to walk pretty tight to you in order for you to get a shot opportunity and they're already trying to spend a lot of time down there like in this mm-hmm. small little tight little smz and the stream side management zone this little hardwood drainage uh for people that don't know what smz is uh so that Again, that's one of those spots, kind of like I brought with bows, like that almost could be almost unhuntable just because of how tight it is and the wind likes to swirl in there. The thermals are kind of working against you based off like where they're trying to bed at. 
and it's it's a lot to try to overcome in that one little spot. And maybe it's a way there's a way to outsmart it and outwork that spot. But some of those spots are the kind of ones I brought with him. I'm like, dude, like you look at it and you try different things, and it's like there's no way to go in there and not get blown at, not get scented. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's definitely how that spot was. Like I, maybe you could hunt it. The only day I could see you hunting it is if you had a, like a, a a very strong thermal updraft. But the only problem with that is, is you're not going to have that like at daylight, mm-hmm. and that's when those does came into bed that, yeah. that blew out. And a lot of the the bucks I was getting on camera in there were showing up at like nine, ten, eleven, noon, and so it was like a daylight core. But I say I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a different way because I don't think you could hunt it on just a straight light and variable thermal day because you're in the shade in those trees. And even if there's a th- strong upward draft around you, you're still like in the cover next to the water. So it's still going. Some of us could still going to be pulling down. I feel like an opposite. Uh-huh. You need a very strong wind to hunt that spot where you have like a 10, 15 mile an hour wind that's like going you, down valley. However, I don't know. Like, because it can't curl over the top because there's a steep hill on one side well, of it. it. We again, it'd have to be one of those things you gotta go try. But I think you would have to hunt it with a with a strong wind and just get in super early and climb and, and try to get a decent height up. Like I wouldn't be sitting eight, 10 feet off the ground. I'm going to try to get a little bit higher, you know, if you get 15, 18 feet up. That'd be pretty nice, but get where that wind's kind of carrying your scent a lot further away than like in that little pocket. Cause if the deer are wanting to be within 40 yards of you, yeah. you don't need light and variable. You need something to be yeah, ripping that yeah. wind way far away from you. That's that true. And ripping it over the top of their head. Something. Yeah. Mm. So that mm. would be my thought on that spot specifically. But again, it's hard because like you said, you get like a steep hillside on one side, the other side's, you know, more gradual, but still like you're going to have some kind of weird swirling action there. So. Have you ever, have you ever tried that tactic though? Like there's a spot like that, that you want to get into and there's steep hills and it's not really working out for a light and variable day. So you wait for a day where the wind is like basically shooting straight down the valley. So the, the valley should like funnel that wind and it shouldn't really shouldn't really curl around on you or anything like that. So if you have like a north and south running valley, you wait for like a, like a hard north breeze and you walk from the south and walk straight up that valley with the wind in your face and it's just like a wind tunnel right in your face i'm trying to think if i have a successful hunt with that happening because <laughs> uh, i've tried that and it works from a wind perspective but i don't know about a deer perspective well it also comes down to like is there a reason why those deer should be in the south of that spot so like you know the problem is you're saying that they're between you and the road yeah so, but also if you're trying to say like well you need to blow away from the road well you got to come in from the road so you're i mean well no so the day that i saw a deer i actually did not come from the road I parked, and you, there is a way where you walk way around and J-hook mm-hmm. into the spot, and I did that successfully. So that worked, kind of. But what I'm saying is if, <laughs> if, if you think that they're tired to the road, then yeah, having a wind that came from the road blowing down that SMZ may could work. Because the thing is, no matter what, like I think when people were, were talking about, like I try to get into the spot, it's 100% bomb-proof, and there are spots like that where a deer can't smell you, you get into a certain spot. Yeah. But in a spot like that, deer could be coming for 360 degrees. So you're, you're just going to have to cut out 70 degrees that deer's just, he's going to smell you if he's coming from that direction. And just hope that he's coming from the other, you know, side. Yeah. Golly, talking about that spot, dude, makes me want to go hunt it again this this year. I mean, I think it's a great spot. It's really hard to hunt, but it's kind of like high risk, high reward. Because, I mean, some of those bucks coming in there were nice. I mean, like real nice bucks, you know? So, <laughs> 
Oh. It's like a it's like, it's like a bad girl, bad ex girlfriend. Keep going back, dude. <laughs> you just keep getting hurt. <laughs> you, and you know what the result's going to be every time, but you think it's going to be different every time. Yeah, well, this time it'll be different. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> everybody's got everybody's got one of those buddies. Oh my god, he's getting back with their ex. Keeps getting back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know, man. That I don't know. That spot intrigues me. When you think turkey calls. Think of Houndstooth. Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different read configuration. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB Hen, some days I might like the Ghost Cut. Some situations I might like the Country Girl Call, you know, that I can cut on really hard, where on other situations I might like the All Pro that I can get a little bit softer on. Bottom line, there's something for everybody and something for every situation. And hey, you you can get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls by using the promo code SOP24. That's SOP24. Use that promo code. It'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke and andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from true lock it's a great option same chokes i have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give true lock a shot this spring you can head over to truelockchokes.com that's t-r-u L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code Southern at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give TrueLock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with TrueLock. Was there anything else with Bo that kind of stuck out to you? Uh, the annual patterns, which is interesting, specifically around scrapes. And it wasn't like, we talked about it from like an individual buck versus like, just mature bucks hitting a scrape and he said like he's seen where some bucks seem to have somewhat of a pattern like kind of coming back to the same area year over year but more times than not it's not just a single buck but there's a certain window of time when scrapes get hit a lot during daylight hours by mature deer yeah there's like a a couple day period that that's constantly happening and you know shane parker we talked to shane about that a little bit too in past episodes but it's like to me, that's very interesting. Like, if you started running more trail cameras in around scrapes and had the annual data from year over year of like what days did those scrapes really pop off? And I don't care about nighttime movement all that much. I mean, it's cool, mm-hmm. but I'm talking like during daylight activity when those bucks are hitting those scrapes or coming by those scrapes. That is something that I'd be very interested in actually hunting a spot like that the following year, similar conditions, the same, you know, couple of days around it and seeing how it plays out. Um, yep. Because, I mean, I, again, I'm, we brought up in the episode, like that buck that was in Arkansas on a mock script that I put out around a slough that is just a freaking hammer. <laughs> I mean, just, yeah. you know, it's just a very unique, 
unbelievable, like a very impressive deer. And, uh, you know, he came, there was a hot doe came through, got chased by a nice buck. And then the next, that day and the next day after that, like a total, of like eight to tw- 10 times, he was on trail camera, both at night and at day time during and the daylight. And that was like October 28th, wasn't it? Roughly? No, it was October 30th and 31st is when that was happening. Oh, okay. So after my sister's wedding. <sighs> I know. I was going to say, dude, if it was at your sister's wedding, like on the 28th, then I could just go in there <laughs> while y'all are all tied up. Dude, good luck trying to find a tree. Where, where that spot is, dude, there's some water. I'll dig a foxhole. I don't care. Um, dude, there's some. I told Thomas because he was going to go in there and try to hunt that mock scrape. And I'm like, dude, unfortunately, where we put it is where the scrape needs to be because it's a cross across yeah. the slough right there. But I don't know how you get elevated. There's like one little tree next to it that's probably about the size, of, a little bit bigger than a basketball, but it's got a weird lean to it. And the thing is, in that spot, if you climb that tree, like there's a bunch of huge water oaks right there. It's like a huge line of water oaks going down. I mean, yeah. monster. Like too big to climb. Way too big. <laughs> like I'm talking like you need ten foot straps on your sticks to okay. get up that tree. Okay. okay. Yeah. But they they line that uh, that slough. They're on that one side of the slough, and there's a couple smaller trees around. But they have these you know huge canopies and and, and water oaks. People hunt around water oaks are like a live oak. They keep their leaves green throughout the majority of the season. Like yep. they, it's it's kind of crazy. So you have a lot of canopy cover right there. And the thing is, if you get elevated. It's one of those spots that you better be, you better be, I mean, ready to roll bow in hand the whole time because the problem is you're probably not going to hear deer come across unless he's come across the slough and the slough's kind of wet because there's one time when I went through the muzzler season, it was completely dry. Like you could walk across the slough, no problem. Yeah. We came back during the gun hunt and it was like four feet of water in that slough, but they were still crossing to that spot where the mm-hmm. mock scrapes yep. at. Mm-hmm. But like it would be, I mean, the tree to climb is next to that mock, where the mock scrapes out on this little water oak. And I'm telling you, if a deer came from like, down the slough off to the left-hand side over that tree is at, you could not see or shoot that deer until it was underneath your tree. I've hunted some spots like that. It's, it's sketch. Tough. It's sketchy. Mm. And I say when I say it's sketchy, it's because like, you don't know when or where the deer's going to pop out at. Uh-huh. And you're like, holy crap. Uh-huh. And then that thing pops out I right mean, there. Yeah, and you, you better you better be dialed. Because <laughs> you got the right. Then if you're Andrew, you'll promptly miss him. I mean, it it would be it would be pretty sketchy. And, and what I mean sketchy is not like, I'm not talking dangerous, but just like, you're, it's so close quarters, and like you'd hunt it really well because you, there's a there's a, a small little field next to it that the deer aren't walking through. They're going around it. When I say small, it's a decent sized field that's next to it, and the deer aren't coming through that field. So you just ha- all you have to do is have the wind blowing back into that field, and you're good. You're golden. Yeah. Okay? Yep. But the, again, the problem is when they step out, they're gonna be underneath you, and like you could see for like 20, 30 yards, like farther up to the right, like up, like up the slough. Like a little you bit. could see them coming. If they come from the top side of the slope, okay. if they come from the bottom side of the slope towards from the riverside, like you cannot see them until they are under your tree. Because uh. I stood at that tree looking at it, and also that tree's got a crazy lean in it. It's got a weird lean, so like you'd yeah. have to saddle hunt in it, and it would just it wouldn't be comfortable. But again, if you're going to kill a deer, that's where you'd have to kill them at. Is that one of those spots where you stood there and just stared at the tree for like 20 oh. minutes? And you're like, <laughs> no, I know. After we made the, after we made the, because I didn't think about like hunting there really when we put the mock scrape out because we were hunting further up the slough. You got that giant buck but like, walk but by. There was like six or seven shooter bucks that came on the camera, including that real big deer. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, crap, dude, I don't know how you'd hunt this. I'm like, you could sit on the ground maybe and get tucked underneath like some of those overhanging limbs and stuff. But again, you couldn't see the deer until he's 30 yards from me. Yeah. So I don't like that idea either. Uh, and the problem is, it's not just that, but also like does start coming through. And I'm like, I'm waiting for the buck. You better like, not get busted. Yeah, try not to get busted. Like, man. But, uh, dude, it, it's a cool freaking spot. Really cool spot. But uh definitely again it kind of goes back to you know you find spots like that that may not be huntable 
for certain reasons, and that might be like one of those. I mean, I think it could be huntable, but dude, it'd be, I mean, close quarters. Just you know, you gotta be on your uh, on your p's and q's and, and ready to roll at all times. Is that spot on the menu uh, this November? Not October? November, October. October. Yeah, after after that wedding's taking place on the twenty eighth, we northbound. <laughs> where is she getting married at? Here? Uh, yes. I'm trying to think. Where is it at? So, but it's in Alabama. Yeah, it's in Alabama. Shoot, man. <laughs> Dang. Better that than a destination wedding. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Well, unless it was like already up there. I'm like, cool. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, this <laughs> after the ceremony, we rolling out. Yeah. Oh, man. Th- uh, Thomas's wedding's going to be like that, but it's not going to be during deer season. He, his wedding's going to be up in Arkansas, but it's going to be like on like, uh, it's going to be like in like late May, like May 25th or something. Oh, nice. Good time. Uh, that's a great time. Good dude. time. Because originally they were going to do it in the summertime. Like, that's fine too. Like, just don't do it. Don't be like all my other buddies, including Andrew, get married during hunting season. I can't, I just can't, I um, can't say anything about uh, it. I mean, you, Colton, <laughs> JT, um, who else? Um, I think that's everybody so far. I'm trying. I think Zach's, he's not, he's getting married next year. I think he's getting married in April. Thank, oh, that's still a problem, dude. Yeah. Now, what are you doing, <laughs> that's man? What I'm saying. It's turkey season. Yeah. And I'm telling you, you gotta get married, you gotta get married from May until like early August. Okay. Yep. yep. Who cares? Like, do do indoor. Don't do an outdoor ceremony. Do indoor ceremony so it's nice mm-hmm. and cool. That's right. And I'm like, we got AC. And nobody, nobody likes an August wedding in Alabama that's outside. Yeah, no. Like, are, you try, are you trying to make people upset? <laughs> like, what are you doing? You tell me I gotta wear a jacket and everything. Oh, like, dude. Goodness gracious. No. But uh, but yeah, I, was, I told him like, good job on on the whole May wedding. I can get down with that. <laughs> so, but uh, anyway, yeah, the annual pattern thing is interesting. Yeah, I I, I, I mean, dude, I'm I feel like we talk about it a lot, but it, it's such a good tactic. I feel like. Well, you know, one of the guys I think brought up to us early on, like early on in the podcast, like like really early on in the podcast with Michael Perry talking about like with his trail cameras, how much of an annual pattern. That's like what he's focused on is annual patterns. He's not really yeah. using data from a camera that's out there right now or like in the fall to try yeah. kill deer this fall. He's using it, you know, around some of these, you know, bluff gaps, creek crossings, uh, one of those bucks cruising through those areas at certain times of the year and then hunting those spots the following year because more than likely they're coming yep. through checking for does. Yeah, exactly. And well, and, I, and I like talking about it too. I think I, I either mentioned this to Bo or, or maybe Alan, who mm-hmm. people hear on Monday. Uh, it, it works for people because a lot of people have a bunch of trail camera pictures from like previous years where they've just ran trail cameras and maybe they haven't been paying attention to annual patterns, but maybe you listen to that podcast. And now you go back and hop on the computer and you go and look, look through those pictures again. And you're like, okay, well this was happening at this time and, and start just trying to piece it together, you know, uh, especially rut timing stuff, specifically rut timing stuff is, is like a, is a big one. Um, but I mean, you could also do it for, I, early season things like if you had a big shift in early season that might be something to pay attention to uh same thing with late season like if you notice in late season that there was a big shift it's like well what did they shift to why Mm -hmm. did they shift um and you can just start piecing a lot of things together and you're kind of thinking about things more cohesively i feel like Mm -hmm. give you a much better idea of what the deer are actually doing in your area so i I just love annual patterns yeah i do too just because i feel like that's one of those things that if you really focus on it and take good notes, like I mean, when Poe was talking about his spreadsheet that he does, mm. I'm like, now that's that's a little advanced, my man. Because no, listen, that I takes- want a screenshot of that. I forgot to ask him, but I want to see what he's got going on because I'm gonna copy it. Yeah, we need some coordinates too. The whole nine yards. Yeah, <laughs> come on, let's go hit up PA. <laughs> but uh, no, but like the whole idea of staying organized like that. I mean, you're talking about a lot of work 
um, like keeping up with that kind of stuff. Like I'll be yeah. honest, I'm not that organized to yeah. like take notes of like everything <laughs> like that. But it is super interesting of just like, especially if you're in an area, and this is I feel like this is super valuable whether you're hunting public land or private land, especially like a hunting club or something or your own like lease or farm, is fine tuning more so with your trail camera strategy other than just finding a big buck on camera. Because yeah. I thought like growing up when we were using trail cameras at, on, on my uncle's farm. It was always like, oh man, got a big buck on camera, and that was it. Like, yep. cool, just had a big buck on camera. Uh, like last year, you know, Anthony at the farm, he killed his biggest buck ever, and the biggest buck ever come off the farm. It was a like, after drying like ninety days and got measured, officially scored like one thirty nine and three eighths as an eight point. Yeah, eight point frame, like crazy. Again, and he's only like thirteen inches wide. He's yeah. a monster deer. Okay, <laughs> yeah. monster deer. God, uh, it was impressive. Like, yeah, he he dressed. He dressed without his freaking hawks, like the front parts of like the his front two legs and the back two legs, 187 pounds at Weavers, which is a tank. Giant. A tank. Biggest deer I've ever seen come out of the farm was like 165 pounds, live weight. So I'm like, that's a monster. But I, I don't think I've ever seen a deer that heavy come from this area. And yeah. I've been hunting this area literally my entire life. Well, this, well, that area he's at. Um, there is a little agriculture around there. It's not like a ton, but I mean, there's some like four or three to four miles away. But, uh, but yep. again, like you just don't see deer like that on camera, like body, especially body size. Yeah. Um, but, Giant. but where I get at with all this is, uh, the, that buck, he had trail cam photos. He's had like history of that deer for like a couple, like, I think three years now. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, he thought the deer was probably three years old when he got photos of it. So he's thinking it's six to seven years old, mm-hmm. uh, when he killed it, but he killed that thing not really off an annual pattern because his pattern totally shifted. So that, that was an interesting deer that we don't may not do a whole episode on, but it'd be interesting to talk to him about it. Cause that deer was like very like sporadic. And you hear guys like Bo talk about this here. Guys like Alan next week, will talk about this and Shane Parker. Like some of these guys talk about like these older bucks, like as they get older, like their home range and their core area shrinks a lot of times. And they made daylight more in, in smaller areas than they did yes. when they were three or four years old. <sighs> And uh, that buck definitely did that. That buck literally was like nomadic. Like he'd only have a few pictures of him a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And each year he'd get a little bit more images, but it was just like random to all of a sudden last year, that buck was at, there's a big red oak and a white oak right next to that little food plot on yeah. like on the side of the property. Mm-hmm. And he was there all the time, early season, like September going through October. And he killed it like mid November at that red oak that was dropping. Like wow. he came through right at last light and shot it right there. But that deer was on camera three to four times a week at different times, daylight, Dude, we, night. We should interview your uncle. That would be a very, very interesting little case study, mm-hmm. I feel like. That would be fun. Yeah. Let's do that. But uh, we can definitely. Let's hit up old Anthony. I think it'd be fun. I got to ask him about some landscaping, too. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, but but again, that buck was just like daylighting. Like, I mean, he was there all the time and coming like right at last light at that camera location and like just all different times. And uh, he was able to go in there and kill a deer. And again, it's the best deer ever. But it's an older buck and it makes you wonder again as some of those bucks get older and older and he's never i don't think he ever saw that deer on the hoof yeah like he until tri- he killed it until he killed it he, he never seen it on the hoof i don't believe he may, may say differently when we get him on the podcast but i don't think he did but um just how different that buck's habits had changed over the last three to four years as it gets some age on him and he was just super comfortable there my uncle really anthony didn't really pressure that spot a whole bunch and he was just very comfortable coming to that location and then was able to go in there and kill that deer and i'm like that is freaking awesome actually i lie he did i think he did see it on the hoof but it was too far earlier and it was like in october i think it was like too far and he couldn't shoot with his bow yeah. and finally i think the day he shot it was like 20 yards or something yeah came right underneath him um i think it was uh alan again 
who you're going to hear on Monday. Man, you just, you keep... Dude, I know, that was a great episode. I'm excited for people to hear it. Uh, he talked about that, too, though, that their uh, core area is shrinking down as they get older. Now, I'd be curious, too, with Anthony, which I'll just ask him this when we interview him, but was there any change in the neighborhood? Like, did something get cut, or did something maybe age out, and that like kind of pushed him onto Anthony's property? Because I wonder why... like. He was more sporadic, and then, you know, I guess he just kept shrinking down that core area until all of a sudden, you know, he was just all over Anthony's place until Anthony killed him. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something funny. During dove season, when we were out there in September, he jumped a big buck. When we, he went, we were like, we shot some doves, and it's crazy. Dude, those deer do not care about gunshots. They don't. I don't think they do, like, at all. Like, if they're comfortable where they're at, you they start hearing gunshots. It's like, oh, whatever, dude. Yeah. But uh, we were on a dove hunt. We were burning the skies up. Okay, <laughs> and he, and he had a couple of doves fall back there, and you've seen his property like it, that property had been clear cut probably twelve years ago, and it's as thick as hell. Eighty five percent of the property had been cut, and uh, he shot a dove that went back to some that real thick stuff like off the food like the food plot that we were kind of like dove shooting on yep. where he had a, a dove plot in, and he went back to go look for that dove, and he jumped a big buck, and it wasn't him, it wasn't the mm-hmm. uh, what do you name that deer. Uh, high tower. High tower. It wasn't high tower. It was another deer. But it was. He said it was a big eight point jumped up. And he thinks he got a couple trail cameras images of him later on. Uh-huh. But he was bedded sixty yards from where we were dove hunting, like on this little high spot right behind the food plot in some thick stuff. Walked over there trying to find a dove and but jumped up, looked at him from his bed, and then bounded off. And he called me. He's like, "Hey, dude, I just jumped a really nice buck, like a big buck over here, right back in the food plot." And I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" Hey. And I'm like, "Okay, cool." Was that over by where we did the dog training? Uh, or a different you, you know that long the long field okay? oh yeah yeah yeah. Well, if you went all the way to the long the end of the long field on the left hand side there's a high spot right there yes it was right there no kidding yeah interesting yep okay very interesting yep. okay yeah we were all over that when we were doing the dog training mm-hmm. yeah we're gonna interview Anthony we got to this is gonna be good uh, I feel like this is gonna be a, that, that'll be a good again good case study well you know something else that happened down there that's actually interesting and it happened this year after he killed that deer so the property next to him that he been want he's been wanting to buy for a while, and the woman just won't sell it. Um, they just clear cut her property, and her property had a lot of uh, red oak and white oaks on it. Yeah. And in that general area, there's not a lot of red oak or white oaks except now on the farm. He's got like he talked about the episode we had him on maybe a year ago, talking about uh, isolated white oaks. Yeah. You know, hunting isolated white oaks in and around pines. Yep. He now has the majority of the only white oaks for probably a couple miles out of the area. Has there been cuts in, around him in the past? Because I feel like it's, it's pretty forested. Yeah, uh, not 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 relatively close. Like this is the closest one since he's cut his place. Th- this is we've heard from a lot of people in the past too that after a, a new actually we talked about this with Bo when a timber cut pops up, buck quality increases and they all suck into and they spot. suck into that spot. And y'all have been talking about how at the farm, like there's been good bucks, but High Tower is like a straight up anomaly mm-hmm. and like i said when we'll we'll get anthony on and when we post the pictures from that y'all y'all will understand why he called this buck high tower like that's probably a, this, a, this imagine this there's 13 inches wide and scored 139 yeah after drying it probably shrank a few inches i don't know yeah well that's and, and that's that's probably like a that is probably a, a very used deer name like everyone has a deer name high tower stickers but, high tower oh dude. Uh, yeah yeah uh, we should do a whole episode on like name. Everybody writing names that like bucks you've named before. Oh, for sure. And, like do a whole episode. I still want to. I want to crowdsource like uh like um have everyone write in with their their hunting spot names. You know, like like people will have like y'all had the rock garden, the panther pond, panther pond, yeah. um freaking the pit, like all kinds of stuff. But anyways, the, I forgot where I was the going. The Lindley with this. House down at the farm. 
but so like at Anthony's place, I wonder how that's going to change things. Because like in an average buck out there, like 115 inches, roughly, probably something like spindly that. Spindly antlers, like skinny, skinny tines. I mean, a mature buck. That's why typically the last t- 15 years, 20 years down there, we have a lot of deer that were like they had nice frames, but they wouldn't have any mass. Yeah, and, and that was before a lot of like his property had been cut and other properties. Now, once he's cut his property, like you can see, like there's more mass on a lot of those deer yeah but um, But it's just not enough no well it's getting better but the um like high towers got some crazy mass on that deer but um where was i going up with that but anyways we had a lot of issues like up until a couple years ago with Uh, bucks breaking off yeah like you'd have you you get to you know that road around there is like mid to late december typically and um you know, you get to December, and there'd be bucks with missing tines all over the place. Yeah, broken main beam stuff like that because they'd fight real hard, but they just they didn't have a lot of mass. And I guess just because of that, and probably not the best nutrition, they didn't have a, a lot of great minerals. So like those those antlers were just breaking. Yeah, I don't. I need to ask him if he's been seeing that whole bunch recently because most of the photos he shows me, all the bucks are fully intact. They're not breaking anymore. That's cool. That's mm-hmm. very interesting. That whole area is kind of like that because you remember the bench. Mm-hmm. You remember that spot. I missed a buck there. It was before they put the antler restrictions on. Mm -hmm. Uh, I missed a buck there that was like probably 16 or 17 inches wide. And I think he had brow tines, but you like he had no points. Like he busted all of them off. Um, And I took a crack at him and I missed him. (laughs) But but, I mean, yeah, that kind of stuff happens, you know. Uh, But no, that's that's very, very interesting. I'll be. I'll be very interested to see how the buck quality is this year now that there's that fresh cut right there. And not only will that probably improve the antler growth of the deer in that area, but it's probably going to suck in some bucks that were kind of far away that he's just missing, you know. Especially that, his neighbor is a big landowner, like a very large landowner that butts up against him. Yeah. And they run, they actually, for their, they have clients. Um, it's a timber company. They have clients they, they bring out and they'll do like hunts out there. It's not high fence or anything, but they'll do like hunts out there. And they have some of the prettiest they do like bean field, corn fields, oh, wow. uh, like small, like they're not big, like, you know, a couple acres. Yeah. Uh, and like, they have high dollar stands. Like they, you know, they, I'm sure they have a ton of like uh red man, or uh redneck shooting blinds and all that kind of stuff around there, but they do a t- huge supplemental food. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I guess program over there on that property. And it always seemed like you get bucks, like especially during the rut coming off those properties. Cause my uncle's probably butts up right against him and coming on his place. Cause he's got a ton of does on his place. Uh-huh. And, uh, it'd be interesting to see, like, like you said, with that cut now, cause that cuts right between his property and that really big landowner. Uh-huh. Like you said, how many bucks that brings across. And now since all those oaks are cut, cause a lot of times when we'd hunt out there, a ton of the deer that we would see would come from that property. The one that just got clear cut. They'd like filter through like, cause we had stand locations. Lindley house is a bow spot. There's a huge scarlet red oak, uh, probably 20 yards into my uncle's property line. And, uh, there's a big pine tree out there that he's got stand in. He's killed a ton of deer in that spot. And a lot of the deer, when you hunt there, even though he's got all the thick stuff, they would come from those, that more open hardwoods. They'd like bed over there and they'd bed across the road. Yeah. Feed their way through those oaks. And they'd end up at that, uh, that big scarlet oak. Cause it would dro- it drops like crazy nearly every year before they come out in the food plot. And now since all that's clear cut, I'm like, and he's getting pretty excited. Like how much better is like the early season of hunting going to be around his food plots, but ooh, also ooh, around ooh. those oaks. Cause he's got, dude, he's We're got about to find out when you talk about like seed trees and like mature oaks on his property, like the way he cut that property, like years ago when he went and replanted pines in there, he left all these huge oaks all over the property scattered out. And again, we did a whole episode with him talking about hunting isolated white oaks. That property is like 
what you would imagine. Like literally every couple hundred yards, you'd have clusters of like three or four huge white oaks or red yeah. oaks. And when they start dropping, you can kind of like go spot check each one where who's getting hit the hardest. Yeah. And you go hunt in and around there. Oh yeah. So yo, that's exciting. I'd like to do an episode on on bedding because you're talking about the deer would be coming like to, I guess to the thick stuff from that other property, and that ties in a little bit to the spot I was talking about earlier that's so hard to hunt, where like the does would come in at first light, but the bucks didn't seem to show up until like mid morning, mm-hmm. and this is early season bow hunting on a high pressure WMA in Alabama. Um, I think it'd be really interesting to do an episode on on like catching deer, like transitioning between beds, and uh, Bo would probably have some something to well, say about well, that. Well, see, my thought is like early season, like I don't think those bucks. I mean, the bucks maybe, but I think the does, they don't really care about bedding in that thick stuff early on. It's no. hot. I think they, one place where they can see, they get better airflow, you know, for like bugs and everything like that. I think they're getting down in the bottom. Well, that, but just on the hillsides where they kind of get in the shade is, is cooler. Cause I'm, I'm hunting, it's called a Lindley house, that tree stand, that spot. And, uh, cause it used to be our own home site right there. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I mean, you'd be sitting there early season, October and it'd be a parade of does coming through those hardwoods from the other property, jumping onto our property line and like mm-hmm. working to that Scarlet Reddick or going down to the food plot. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but later in the season, that's when they get more of those thick stuff. And like, you gotta be careful cause you walk in there and there's, there's deer bedded everywhere. Well, yeah. The one thing I haven't talked about, I know I mentioned it at some point, but it's been a, a long time was, uh, back when we were just really into the buck bedding stuff, we were head over heels into it. I put a camera, I found, a, I mean, just your classic quote unquote buck bed that was on the edge of what I'm just going to call a cutover. Um, it was grassy. It was like very, it's basically open grassland stuff. There were some briars in it, uh, but it was, it was, it was open terrain. And on the edge of it, there was a small rocky drainage that went up off the edge and there was just a lot of saplings there uh, that butted up against some bigger timber at the top. And there was a big fallen, big rotten fallen tree right there. And it was worn down to the dirt. I mean, probably the size of like a car hood, uh, worn down to the dirt, big bed, hair all in it. This is in summertime. And, uh, it was cool up there in that, in that open grassy stuff. It was freaking hot. I mean, like it, you know, I mean, everyone knows how it is down here in the South in the summertime, super hot. That bed was clearly getting used. It was like cool to the touch. You know, that that dirt and that shady little grove right there in this draw was cool. So I put a camera on that. Left it all summer, all most of the winter, and then I went and got it. Uh, throughout the summer, there was like a doe, like multiple does, uh, a spike, and a, a pretty good buck, like a, a rack, like a shooter buck. Used that bed multiple times. So it was, it was does and bucks using it. So it's not, you know, quote unquote, a buck bed. But it, it was a bed that several different deer used. And they used it like fairly consistently. Actually, the spike used it the most. And then when that they used it up until the leaves turned. So like late October, you start getting your, your poplars and stuff around here. They're the first things to drop. And a lot of those saplings in there were poplars. And so early fall those poplars start to turn and just they just started to turn and drop and it went cold not another deer used it the whole time the camera was there and the camera died sometime in like late november i'm pretty sure and uh at from that point on no other deer used that bed not not even one time uh so i think that's kind of when that transition happened you know when the when the leaves start dropping and they do that hard bedding transition i think that's when they move into the thick stuff and that kind of goes back into the annual pattern things not that i would necessarily hunt over that bed because i wouldn't uh but now i have a much better idea of when they're 
shifting their betting routines Mm -hmm. because that also has a lot of implications for access. You know, if they're betting in those hardwood bottoms, well, all of a sudden what we typically think about as positive and negative terrain, like Josh Driver, is flipped on its head. And it's exactly the opposite. And that thick stuff in the daytime is going to be your negative terrain. And they're going to be down in those bottoms, and that's going to be your positive terrain because they're laying there during that time. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that... That is a very interesting topic right there, my man. Very interesting topic. Actually, shoot, in Georgia this past year, that's exactly what happened to me. I walked up that bottom, and I jumped a buck, bedded right there in the bottom, right off the creek in the wide open. He was tucked up under something, but he was pretty much in the wide open in a cool creek bottom and uh, ended up shooting a buck there the next day, whether it was him or somebody else. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that Georgia hunt still haunts me. I was telling Alan when we interviewed him about that those big tracks I cut, like the first afternoon oh, yeah. we were there, where it was like coming across a, a, a fire break where you had – it was the same buck. You can tell by his track. He had a very unique – I think it was his front right hoof. had like a weird toe that kind of like curled out a lot more and had his tracks like in three or four different spots within 20 yards, him going back and forth across this uh, fire break. Now, I told Hunter – or camera guy and i was like man like i think we got a chance to go kill him in the morning coming back to bed like in these slut cut ponds in the morning yeah slipping in there in the dark it's like 45 minutes before daylight and we're walking in there i have my headlight and i look up and we're not probably 60 yards from the tree we're trying to get in and 30 to 40 yards in front of us i see a big set of eyes and i'm like crap that's probably him <laughs> and like he kind of looked at us kind of looked at us i was like i was like dude i think this might be over he's like you think that's the buck of my head pretty good chance that's probably the buck because <laughs> right? it's pretty close to right where he'd been crossing that yeah and uh dude that that deer saw us and i like you could tell it had a big body but you couldn't see antlers in the headlight or in a headlamp and it kind of like tucked back in some thick stuff i kind of got low and eased out of there and we got up in the stand on my dad i think that I'm, was I'm, him i'm like i don't even know if it's worth getting the tree we got in the tree and didn't see a single thing that morning i'm like that was him 100 <sighs> percent. and we freaking as uh as uh, uh, Josh Ireton from the Untamed would say, we pie faced that buck. Yeah, for sure. Man, that hunt, that hunt also kind of bothers me a little bit. I mean, I, I shot a buck. I was happy with it. I mean, he's a two and a half year old buck, but I mean, after five days of hunting hard, dude, I was more than happy to shoot that thing, mm-hmm. uh, especially with my bow. But uh, I, kind of, I wish we had been able to do that hunt like two weeks earlier because that that's when we've been the most effective out there because we've hunted that property before, and yep. uh, I just I, I felt like we got there a little bit after the action was like really good. Cause it had been getting hunted for almost a month at that point. Uh, and we've had really good luck out there in September, just being able to get on those deer while they're still on those patterns. Mm-hmm. And like at the time we hunted it, I feel like you're at the very beginning of like some of those transitions that are happening. Like some white oaks are starting to drop. The persimmons are gone for the most part. Muscadines are gone for the most part. Um, and then, and then, like I said, some of those poplars and stuff are starting to turn and fall and you're just barely starting to get the first, you know, hints of fall. But I think that does kind of shift what they're doing. Well, that, but you're also, you're not finding whip rubs anymore. You're finding like some of the bigger rubs. Well, yeah, well, I'm fine. Yeah. We found whip rubs, but they're like two, three weeks old, Yep. you know, and those are really, to me, like those are really only that important when they're like a day old, Yeah. you know, but I don't know. I'm, I'm we got our licenses i'm tempted to go give it a poke like open a weekend dude because especially you know there's that cutover right up there at the front that was brand new last year this year it's gonna be even thicker right up there at the front by the sign 
There's a oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That intrigues me because uh-huh. I've had some encounters in that spot before. Yeah. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, guys, appreciate y'all listening to this outro. We're going to wrap this one up. Uh, this Thursday breakdown, Friday breakdown, whatever it's going to be named now. But uh, anyways, this outro, appreciate y'all listening. I uh, hope y'all enjoyed Bo's episode. If y'all did, go give Bo a subscribe on uh, on the podcast and check out his YouTube channel as well. He's putting out some pretty cool content. And again, you can check him out at East Meets West and eastmeetswest.com. But uh, appreciate y'all listening. Make sure y'all check out our YouTube channel, Southern Outdoorsman, on YouTube and all social media platforms. Give us a follow there, and we'll catch y'all back here on the next episode from the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We are going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast this show was literally made for you it is an excellent group of people that are going to be there a lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there you're going to get to talk to them shake their hand learn from them in person make some connections and guys we get a lot of questions about hey, which saddle should i get which tree stand should i get what about this piece of gear what about that piece of gear How do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.